Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to another episode and the final episode of the Cold Case Road Trip series here on the Murder Bucket Podcast. If this is the first time that you have listened to a Cold Case Road Trip episode, I would highly suggest going back to episode 20 where it all started. If you have no idea what I'm talking about as far as the cold case road trip, let me just briefly explain. Over the course of 29 episodes, we have traveled to all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories. Each week, we explored a cold case in two locations. And like I said earlier, tonight is the final episode. We have made it to stops 55 and 56, and we will be traveling to Illinois and Massachusetts. I would like to quickly thank each and every one that has been a part of this series, either throughout it all or here and there on occasion. Whether that's with case suggestions, likes, follows, encouragements, and most of all, listens. I don't want anyone to get discouraged now that the series is coming to a close, because I promise to continue to bring you thoroughly researched information regarding murders, paranormal activity, kidnappings, abductions, and of course, weird stuff. So thank you again for being part of this wonderful series. Now, before we get into our final episode, let's go ahead and do a week-slash-weekend recap. Last week, I mentioned that my daughter had come down with an ear infection, and she is actually doing a whole lot better. Pretty much all last week, she was uninterested in eating anything and really just wanted to drink Pedialyte, which the pediatrician said was perfectly fine. As long as she was hydrated, that's all they were worried about. But finally, this week, she started to go on the up and up and has been eating me out of house and home. And I am not even kidding. Tonight, she downed an entire fruit pouch, two pudding pouches, a huge helping of puffs, and then ate half of her SpaghettiOs with meat sauce, which for her is a lot. Now, for me personally, nothing too exciting happened. Obviously, it was Halloween weekend, so happy Halloween. I would love it if you would share your Halloween costumes 
Let me know what you did, if you went out, if you stayed home and passed out candy, if you had like a fall festival. I would just love to know. So send me a picture on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I made a Halloween costume for our daughter. She was Hedwig, which is the owl from Harry Potter, if you're not familiar with it. And then my husband was Hagrid. And my husband actually has pretty long hair, so he let me curl it. But unfortunately, the curls didn't stay, so his hair was just long and streaky. And then I just kind of put together a last-minute costume of being Dobby. I just bought a potato sack on Amazon because, of course, you can get anything on Amazon. And I just wore shorts and a t-shirt underneath it, so it wasn't that exciting. If you would like to see the pictures, let me know. I'll send them to you. And that's really all that happened for me this week. So let's go ahead and get into tonight's episode. Stop 55, Illinois. In the early afternoon of May 7th, 1982, eight-year-old Trisha Kellett returned home after school to her uptown apartments in Chicago, Illinois. Her parents were divorced, so she lived with her mom and her stepdad. When she walked in the door, she gave her mother, Dorothy Joe a painting she made for her for Mother's Day, and then asked if she could go outside and play with friends. Her mother told her to watch for her father's car as her and her brother were spending the weekend with him. According to her family, she always had a ton of energy and had trouble sitting still for long periods of time. She preferred going outside rather than watching TV because she would often get bored. The neighbor's dog had recently given birth to a litter of puppies, and like most girls, Trisha loved puppies. She would often visit so that she could play with them. And when she did this on this particular day, the neighbor wasn't surprised. She played with them for a little bit, but then knew that she had to leave because her father would be arriving soon. The neighbor was the last person to see Trisha because when she left to return home, she never got there. Brad Kellett, Trisha's father, got to his ex-wife's house at around 4 p.m. His son was anxiously waiting for him outside, but he didn't see his daughter. He thought maybe that she lost track of time. So after waiting for a while, he checked with Dorothy Joe to see if she knew where his daughter was. She assumed that she was outside waiting for him, but after learning that that was not the case, she began to grow concerned. The family started to search for her in the immediate area, but it seemed that she had vanished without a trace. Several neighbors joined in the search and began to look through the nearby park and churchyard where she sometimes played. Nothing was found. When some of the neighborhood children learned that she was missing, they told Dorothy Joe that they saw her walking down the sidewalk with a man that they did not recognize. They went on to state that they appeared to be having a conversation, and then she got into a car. Her mother immediately called the police after receiving this information. And according to Medium.com, the Chicago Police Department was initially unconcerned 
and it took Dorothy Joe several more phone calls before they finally sent an officer out. By the time this officer arrived, Trisha had been missing for six hours. The police officer questioned the children that witnessed her walking with the unknown man. They stated that they were walking near the corner of Leland and Ashland Avenue. He was in his early 30s and around 6 feet tall and weighed about 200 pounds. He had brown hair and a mustache. They described the car that she got into as a blue four-door 1979, either Dodge or Pontiac, with damage to the right front door. Several of the witnesses believed there was a second man in the vehicle, but no one could provide a description. A neighbor told police that they also saw Trisha speaking with the unknown male and noticed the partial plate on the car. That same night, police received tips that Trisha had been seen going into the Malden Arms Hotel, but police were never able to confirm this sighting. Even though police had a description of the unknown male and his vehicle, they never located him. Brad and Dorothy Joe made several public pleas for their daughter's return. They believed that she was still alive. Two weeks after her disappearance, Trisha would have turned nine years old. Like most, her family bought her presents and prayed that she would come home to open them. Unfortunately, that never happened. Dorothy Joe took her daughter's disappearance extremely hard. She would sometimes wake up at night convinced that she heard her outside. Trisha often loved to wear clogs, and everyone knows how loud clogs are. She would wake up, run outside, and believe that she heard her, but the only thing that she would find would be an empty street. She eventually moved out of that apartment and moved to Missouri. She did keep the same phone number in hopes that Trisha would contact her. Her photo was featured on milk cartons in 1985. This brought in many tips and sightings, but none of them led to anything. Her parents both died without ever learning what happened to their daughter. Over the years, her case went cold due to little information that was received. That was until, in 2018, NBC became interested in Trisha's case and filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the Chicago Police Department. This request gave them access to her entire case file. When they reviewed it, they learned shocking details that were never released to the public. Shortly after Trisha disappeared and when police received the description of the unknown male and his car, police did identify him. His name? Marvin Pontarelli. He was the owner of the blue vehicle that matched the description given to police by one of the witnesses. He also matched the description of the man that was seen with her at the corner of Leland and Ashland Avenue and at Malden Arms Hotel. Marvin had a long criminal background that included rape, kidnapping, and sexual assault charges. In the report, police showed several photos to the neighbors and many of them picked out Marvin 
and stated that he was the man that they saw with Trisha. The police brought him in for questioning and administered a polygraph test, which he failed. Even though several people made a positive identification of him and police were certain he was involved, he was never arrested or charged with Trisha's disappearance. He was charged with several other crimes that were committed that day. According to the charlieproject.com, Marvin took three of Trisha's friends to his apartment, gave them beer and drugs, and then sexually assaulted them. Police searched his apartment and found 66 items of child pornography, including photos of these girls. Unfortunately, six months after he was arrested, all charges against him were dismissed because the victims failed to appear in court to testify against him. In 1984, a witness came forward and told police that they had overheard Marvin telling people that he had indeed abducted Trisha to photograph her having sex with a man named Larry Fassler. Larry was a former inmate who Marvin met while in prison in California. Some articles state that Marvin owed him money and decided to blackmail him with the photos, while others state that it was the other way around. Larry owed Marvin money. A police report filed by the Chicago police states that Larry's address book was searched and they found Trisha's name and address written down, as well as Marvin's name directly below it. Larry then contacted the Arizona Police Department and asked for an interview. He stated that after being questioned and his home searched by police regarding Trisha's disappearance, he had written down her name in his address book and believed Marvin was the type of person who could be responsible because of his criminal past. Marvin was then arrested in Arizona in 1985 on unrelated charges. The Chicago Police Department took this opportunity to interview him while he was in custody. At one point, he told police that Larry killed Trisha, but then changed his mind, started to cry, and admitted that he had killed her and buried her on his family's property in Illinois. Later on, he took back everything he said and told them that Larry had taken Trisha to Mexico and didn't know what happened to her after that. There were never any charges filed against Larry or Marvin in regards to Trisha's disappearance. Marvin died in an Arizona prison in 1994. The Chicago police believe that he was the one responsible for her disappearance. To this day, Trisha is still listed as a missing person. She was last seen wearing a blue long sleeve sweater blue jeans, and brown shoes. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Trisha Kellett, you are encouraged to contact the Chicago Police Department. Before we move on to our final stop, please take a moment to listen to these words from our sponsor. Thank you to Unidragon for sponsoring tonight's episode. With Christmas just around the corner, I'm sure you're facing the same problem as me. Finding the perfect gift to give a friend, your spouse, 
your nephew, or to bring to a work holiday party. There are so many things out there to choose from. But if you want to give something unique, I have the solution. It's called Unidragon, expertly crafted wooden puzzles. I own the Charming Owl Puzzle. When it first arrived, I was completely blown away. Unidragon tells you that each piece has its own unique shape, and they aren't wrong. They mention the incredibly vibrant colors of each puzzle, and it will amaze you when you see one in person. The reasons why so many people love Unidragon puzzles is because it's interesting for adults and children. Each puzzle is packed in a premium wooden gift box, and new puzzles are released every month. Unidragon has given Murder Bucket listeners their very own promo code. When you go to unidragon.com and enter promo code BUCKET, you will receive 10% off. So get your shopping list done early this year by visiting unidragon.com and selecting one of their gorgeous puzzles. And we're back with the second half of tonight's episode. Stop 56, Massachusetts. On the evening of September 28, 1996, six-year-old Jesus de la Cruz was walking down the sidewalk on Park Street in Lynn, Massachusetts with a friend who was nine years old. He was pushing his pink huffy bike that had two flat tires. The boys were heading home after playing that evening in Bennett Circle. While the boys were out playing, Magdalena Rodriguez, Jesus' mother, went to a nearby friend's house on Western Avenue, and when she returned home at 7 and realized that Jesus had not returned, she immediately went out looking for him. She searched the Park Street neighborhood for several hours and then called the Lynn Police Department to file a missing persons report. Officers Richard Courtney and Stephen Withrow responded to the initial call. An extensive search was led by Joseph Rowe, captain of the Lynn Police Department at the time. They searched the immediate area surrounding his home and the area where the boys had been playing. They then spoke with a friend who was with him at the time. This friend told police that while they were walking, a man and his dog approached them and offered Jesus a new bike to replace his since his tires were flat. The friend went on to say that the man and Jesus started walking toward Lynn Commons, but the friend had stayed there because he was following the instructions from his father to come straight home after playing and not go anywhere else. The friend described the man as being Caucasian, in his 20s or 30s, with shoulder-length black hair. The dog that was with him was either a shepherd or a collie, with one white eye and one brown. The police later identified the man as 26-year-old Robert Levescue. He was well-known to the neighborhood children because of his dog's distinctive appearance. On the evening that Jesus disappeared, Robert had called out sick from his job. He was a store clerk in Marblehead. 
Robert was then arrested at his parents' home in Lowell and charged with a parole violation, motor vehicle offenses, and possession of stolen property. His apartment on Western Avenue, which was around the corner from Jesus' home, was searched and investigators found a piece of duct tape, handcuffs, two drumsticks, a hammer, and the dog that he had with him. The friend that was with Jesus failed to pick Robert out of a lineup. After being held for several weeks, Robert did plead guilty on stolen vehicle charges, but never anything in regards to Jesus' disappearance. Investigators continued to search in the area for any clues as to Jesus' disappearance. The pond at Pine Grove Cemetery was drained as well as several other ponds in the area. When any human remains were found, the DNA never matched. In the weeks following her son's disappearance, Magdalena was accused of neglect by the Massachusetts Department of Social Services for not reporting him missing for six hours after he was apparently abducted. There was speculation that he was abducted as a result of drug use by a member of his family and taken to either Puerto Rico, New York, or the Dominican Republic. Magdalena has always denied knowing anything regarding her son's case. Lynn Police Chief Kevin Coppinger was quoted in an article on itemlive.com saying, We have no idea. We don't know where he is. There was just a lot of tips and a lot of rumors. Six-year-olds just don't disappear like that. There were a lot of allegations that we looked into involving suspicious activity. Nothing ever produced anything that we could go forward on. Detectives were working on this 24-7. You just hope something breaks. Maybe someone finally gets the guilt and wants to confess. Captain Rowe handled this case for 12 years before he retired in 2008. He stated that Robert remained a person of interest during this time, but is no longer considered a suspect. He maintained regular contact with Jesus' father, Juan de la Cruz. He said that every phone call would end the exact same way, with Juan crying. When he retired, he handed the case over to Lynn Police Captain Mark O'Toole, who replaced him as head of the Criminal Investigation Division. He also gave Juan Captain O'Toole's contact information. Captain Rowe is quoted in itemlive.com saying, Anybody involved in law enforcement knows a case that haunts them long after retirement. I'm not satisfied that we were not able to prove some resolution to this case in regards to finding out what happened to Jesus. In 2011, Juan provided a DNA sample which was profiled and uploaded into the FBI's Combined DNA Index System, better known as CODIS. This was done in case a body was ever found. 
Juan checks in with the Lynn Police Department once a year to see if there has been any updates. The Fireball Run is an eight-day, 14-city, 2,500-mile life-size trivia game. It also has another purpose. It has aided in the successful recovery of 48 missing children since 2007. Now, you might be asking why I'm telling you about the Fireball Run. That's because in 2016, during the run, Amesbury Mayor Ken Gray and Charlie Cullen were on a team known as the Carriage Town Cruisers. While they made their 2,000-mile trek across Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, and Massachusetts, they passed out card-sized reminders of Jesus' case. They hoped to assist in the recovery of number 49 while they made their way home to Amesbury. Charlie is quoted in an article on NewburyPortNews.com saying, In every single town, hamlet, and city we go into, we pass these posters and calling cards with a picture on it to everyone. In fact, at last night's dinner in Poughkeepsie, New York, the president of the Child Rescue Network, Jeff Greisemeyer, highlighted our team's missing child because it was the 20th anniversary of his disappearance. September of 2021 marked 25 years since Jesus vanished. Over the years, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has released several age progression photos of him in hopes that somebody recognizes him. Jesus was last seen wearing a white t-shirt, blue jeans, brown or yellow boots, or high-top shoes. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Jesus de la Cruz, you are encouraged to contact the Lynn Police Department or the Massachusetts State Police. And that concludes the Cold Case Road Trip series. Thank you again so much for sticking with me through all 29 episodes and all 56 stops. If you have any suggestions for future cases or weird stuff or anything that you might want me to cover in future episodes, just let me know. Send me a personal message on Instagram, on Twitter, or on Facebook. Now, before you go, please take the time to listen to this promo from my friends at Apple for the Teacher podcast. Hi, I'm Anna Thomas, and let me tell you about my podcast, Apple for the Teacher. It sure sounds like it's about reading, writing, and arithmetic. But don't let the title fool you. I'm a teacher from Australia and tell true crime stories associated with schools, which go far beyond shootings and teacher sexual misconduct. If you're like me, you may feel that you know enough about some high-profile cases, such as Ted Bundy and the Zodiac Killer. 
Apple for the Teacher presents lesser known stories such as Albino student murder in Africa, schoolgirl sexual slavery in Libya, a school suicide bombing in Pakistan, a student murdered and buried in his school in India, a teacher beheaded in France, Polish teachers executed by the Nazis, just to name a few. But you'll also find school-based tragedies such as a school bus stranded in a snowstorm, a school wiped out by a landslide, the drowning of students in a sinking ship. It can be described as a mixed bag of diverse stories. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then give it a listen. And I hope you can join me soon. But until then, remember to be a good apple. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurderBucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murder. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.